All right, welcome back to the Equip Institute. The weather changed since last week. You know, Leah and I were talking about this over the weekend. Whenever you get used to it starting to feel like fall, 81 feels like 91. You know, at the end of summer, 81 feels great. But then whenever you get used to the 60s and 70s and all of a sudden it's 81 or 82, you're miserable. So, uh, so it was nice to finally, finally come back to the fall and it looks like it's going to stay like that for a while. Hey, two or three announcements to let you know about. Uh, the first one is I made a mistake, but you're probably going to not be upset about the mistake. I accidentally didn't print out my note packet for you. I printed out my notes for you. So you have in front of you what I normally hoard for myself. I only, I only typically give you about 80 or 85% of it. And so what's going on? Okay. So, uh, so anyway, you know, you're welcome. You can enjoy that. Uh, but but second, second thing I wanted to let you know about, I brought some swag for you if you want it. Now, uh, what, what some of you don't know what swag means, the stuff we give away. <laughs> so we have these, uh, these wonderful uh, little notes, uh, note packets that have the Taylor's Equip Institute sticker on the front. So we have those out there, and you're welcome to go. Vanna is over here showing them off, and so you are welcome to, uh, to grab one of those if you want to. And then the last thing, just to let you know about, I mentioned this several weeks ago, but I wanted to bring it up again because I know that folks come and go. Uh, December 6th is officially the week after we finish our fall series. But as I mentioned, uh, we're going to have a bonus session. And that bonus session is not going to be uh, very much teaching content. Instead, it's going to be unrecorded, just open conversation with whatever questions you might have after the fall or things that you're wondering about. Uh, so it'll be a little less formal. Again, it's not uh, really officially part of the teaching series, but I know every week folks have questions and some of you send emails and things like that. So it's just a good opportunity for us to get together and talk about whatever is on your mind after we've spent the semester talking about the scriptures. So that'll be up in here. Uh, at the same time, 6.30, it'll be, at the, it'll be happening at the same time as the WMU banquet, so you're going to have to make a choice, and I'm not, gonna, I'm not competing with the WMU banquet, okay? So you're not going to hurt my feelings. You go to the WMU banquet if you want to, but we will be here if you're not planning on going to that, uh, not WMU banquet, the speaker, uh, the event, but uh, we'll be up here at 6.30 uh, for that bonus session. Let's open up with a word of prayer, and then we'll get started. Father, thank you so much for another Wednesday that we have the opportunity to be here together. We thank you for this space. We thank you for uh, this church. We thank you for your word. And we pray, Father, that the things that we talk about tonight, that in many ways aren't directly in your word, but around your word, would help us to be better students of your word. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, I'm so excited about tonight. And one of the reasons that I'm excited about tonight is uh, I'm going to go ahead and confess this to you. I have never taught on this material before. And I've wanted to for a long time. And so, so, so I'm really excited about this. Uh, we're going to talk about the intertestamental period. What's going on in between the Old and New Testament? Some of it is historical background that kind of fills in the gaps around some things that we know from the Old Testament. And, and some of it provides some historical background for things that are still going on at the time of the New Testament. But uh, again, we'll be in the Word a little bit tonight, but we're mostly talking about the history of what's going on in the background, if you will. Uh, during that time in between when the Old Testament was completed and when the New Testament was written. So by way of introduction, uh, the Equip Institute exists to equip members of Taylor's First Baptist to think rightly about God and His Word for the sake of living rightly before God in His world. We are 
in the middle of a 12-week study of the Christian story. Last week, we finished our four-week overview of the Old Testament. Tonight, we're going to look at the intertestamental period. And then we're going to spend the last three weeks talking about the New Testament. I was working on that earlier today. Uh, We'll come together next week and talk about the Gospels and Acts, and we're going to have a lot of good time as we continue this conversation about the Christian story. But tonight, it's the intertestamental period. So let's think about that time period together. The intertestamental period is not a topic discussed in Scripture. But it covers the history of the Jews in between the return to Jerusalem and the initial rebuilding of the temple, that's on the front end, and then the births of John the Baptist and Jesus of Nazareth, that's on the back end. Now, you've probably heard this phrase before. Protestants sometimes call this period the 400 years of silence. How many of you have heard that before? Uh, Almost every hand goes up. The 400 years of silence. Because there were no prophets whose words were recognized as Scripture or recorded in Scripture uh, between Malachi in the early 400s and the rise of John the Baptist probably in the late 20s A.D. And of course, he's not writing Scripture, but his words are recorded in Scripture. Now, does that mean that there are no prophets at all during that period? The honest answer is, we don't know. We have no idea. Maybe there were some. Maybe there weren't any. But what we can say definitively is there weren't any who, in the providence of God, we have their words today. Does that make sense? So that's why we call it the 400 years of silence. And this period is part of a larger block of time that begins with Judah's return from exile in 444 B.C. and ends with the fall of Jerusalem in A.D. 70. So that time from Judah's return uh, through almost everything that happens in the New Testament is one big block of time for the history of the Jews. Does that make sense? And so the intertestamental period falls in that. When historians study this period, they tend to focus upon one of two themes. The first theme is political. And they highlight which empire is reigning over the Jews at a given time. And we'll talk a little bit about that. The second theme is cultural, highlighting what's called Hellenistic Judaism, the Greek version, if you will, of Judaism and how Jewish religion and culture adapted uh, to the rule of the Greeks, Hellenistic Judaism. Uh, a time when the Jews were dispersed throughout the Greek-speaking world and when Greek functioned as the universal language of the public square. Everybody still spoke whatever their home languages were, whether that was Hebrew or later Aramaic or whether it was some other language uh, down in Egypt or over in Europe, but kind of the language of commerce and trade and politics was Greek. It was the public language. That's the reason that the New Testament is written in Greek. When Bible scholars study the history of this period, they tend to focus on what's called Second Temple Judaism. Now, have any of you heard that phrase before? It's a little less common. Uh, Second Temple Judaism refers to the religious views of the Jews during the period between when the temple was rebuilt around 516 AD and when it was destroyed in AD 70. It's Second Temple Judaism because it's the second version of the temple. So what was Jewish religion and culture like during that period? So taken together, whether it's the stuff the historians are interested in, the empires and the the commerce and, and the adaptations of Judaism, or whether it's stuff that the Bible scholars are interested in, when we take it all together, All of this provides the cultural and religious background for the ministry of Jesus and the subsequent rise of Christianity as a separate faith from Judaism. Because remember, the earliest followers of Jesus were Jews. Takes a little bit of time for people to begin to think about Christianity as something different than Judaism, whether that was the followers of Jesus or whether that was the Roman Empire. 
uh, which just didn't know what to do uh, with these new beliefs. And so all of that's kind of in the background of what we're going to be talking about tonight. So any questions so far before we start digging in? Yeah. In, in your second paragraph, the last sentence, you talk about um, the, the time that, that begins with Judah's return from exile 444. Yes. That's basically when, when their return completed, isn't it? Didn't it start in five? Yes, yes, that's the final return. So if we, so the question is that 444 date with Judah's return, isn't that when it's completed? And the answer is yes. They actually return over the course of about three generations, and it comes in different stages. And so uh, the way to think about it is uh, by the 440s, and we think we can date it precisely to 444, everyone who's coming back is back. Does that make sense? Not everyone comes back. But most of them do, and everybody who's coming back is back. So that's a good question. Any others? Yes? There's a technical question. When you said late and early in BC, what do you mean? Yeah, that's gonna that's a great question. <laughs> so it still means the same thing it would mean in AD. So the late 500s would be like the 580s or the 590s, and the earlies would be like the 510s and 520s. It's just running in reverse. Yeah. I know. It's, it's, so, it's so confusing. It's so confusing. You know what's also confusing? This has nothing to do with what we're talking about, but I'm just going to say it anyway. Uh, anybody here ever taken a Hebrew class? Yeah, I mean, you read Hebrew the opposite way than, uh, than you do. You read it from right to left instead of left to right. When I was in college, one of my best friends was dyslexic. And the first day of Hebrew class, the professor says, the first thing you need to know is that you read it from right to left. And he went, yes, in front of the whole class. So, so it's kind of like, kind of like the Hebrew language, the B.C. and A.D. It's backwards and it throws us, throws us off with how we think about it. So let's talk about the age of empires. Uh, have any of you seen the... Uh, the trend out there on the internet, the whole joke about how often do men think about the Roman Empire? Have some of you seen that and you know what we're talking about? So we're going to talk about the Roman Empire. And, uh, and those of us who are men will be men talking about the Roman Empire. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, ask your children or your grandchildren. They know, they know this trend. So we often refer to the period from 597 to 538 as the Babylonian exile because Judah was conquered by the Babylonian Empire, and most Jews were deported to other parts of the region. That wasn't about the Jews in particular. That's what the Babylonian Empire did. They were trying to create a melting pot, to use a modern term. And so anytime they conquered a people, they would take a portion of those people, often the most gifted and, and the most educated, they would relocate them to other parts of the empire, and they'd relocate other people to, uh, to where they had taken people from. And again, what they were trying to create was a common Babylonian culture where people were more loyal to Babylon than they were to their home tribes and their home places. So wasn't from Babylon's perspective, there's nothing special about the Jews. That's just what they do when they conquer a people. But that whole period, the Babylons aren't in control. In 539, at the very end, the Babylonians were conquered by the Medo-Persians. We often just call them the Persians. And a year after that, in 538, Cyrus the Great allowed Jewish exiles to return to Judah. That's the first of those three returns that happen over a period of about 100 years. Now, we only know a little bit about these early Jewish repatriates, though we do know some things. We know that reconstruction of the temple was begun in 536, and we know that it stalled out because of local Gentile opposition. We know that Zerubbabel, a descendant of David, was appointed the governor of Judah. He's kind of a puppet governor. Cyrus is still the king, but a descendant of David is allowed to go back. And, and be the, they didn't use this term, they didn't think this way, but to use a modern term, uh, kind of like the secular ruler of Judah under the authority of King Cyrus. We also know that the temple was completed in 516 during the reign of Darius. 
And we know most of this from Ezra and Nehemiah and a very little bit from Daniel. Uh, but that's, that's almost everything we know about this period uh, of the Jews comes directly from the Bible, not from extra records that are out there. During the reign of Xerxes, there, by the way, there's going to be lots of great names for your male children and grandchildren that we're going to unearth tonight. So, uh, you know, Zerubbabel, Xerxes. Uh, during the reign of Xerxes, the events of Esther took place. And during the reign of Artaxerxes, Ezra and Nehemiah returned to Jerusalem. Malachi and Joel were active as prophets during these later Jewish repatriations when they were returning. And then the intertestamental period officially begins around 420 when the book of Malachi was likely written. If you remember last week, we talked about how it's theoretically possible that the book of Joel comes after Malachi, but most Christians through most of history and most Jews think it was Malachi, uh, but they were written around the same time. So even if it's not Malachi and it's, it's the book of Joel and it's not exactly 420 and it's 422 or 418, it's around that time whenever the intertestamental period is going to begin. So the Persians continued to rule over most of the Middle East, including Israel, until the year 332. We know that the Jews enjoyed relative autonomy. They were led by governors, the people who followed Zerubbabel. They also reinstituted the high priesthood though they were still ultimately under the rulership of the Persians. By the 4th century, however, so by the 300s, the Medo-Persian Empire was in cultural disarray. They were politically weakened. Uh, They were plagued by court intrigue and royal assassinations. Now, we're not going to get into all of that. But uh, if you were to go and look in a textbook or look online and, and you say something like, uh, like, say you go to Google and you say, show me all of the rulers of the Medo-Persian Empire. What you're going to see is these people like Darius or Xerxes or Artaxerxes who rule for about a generation. And like the last 12 or so of them uh, rule like 30 years. <laughs> or 40 years. So they're just killing each other constantly in different warring families and factions. It's a crumbling empire, culturally. And crumbling empires fall. And so in 332, the Persians were conquered by Alexander the Great. This is going to be the introduction of Greek culture into that region of the Middle East. This is the beginning of Hellenistic Judaism. Now, some of you know this, Alexander is only uh, active as a leader for about a decade, about nine years that he rules over uh, this young empire. He dies in 323 as a young man. But his empire, whenever he died, was divided among four different generals who are basically going to be warlords that are over different parts of the Alexander's Greek Empire. One of those men was Ptolemy, who was based in Egypt. The Ptolemies, the dynasty named for General Ptolemy, so his descendants, the Ptolemies will rule Israel from Egypt for about 125 years. They kept a firm control over Israel and limited the freedom of the Jews to practice their faith, promoting instead the worship of the Greek gods. Many Jews relocated to Egypt during this time. Again, that's the heart of their part of the empire. And that led to Alexandria becoming the largest Jewish center outside of Israel. So if you're ever looking at a study Bible and it'll talk about how there's this large group of Jews in Alexandria and you may be wondering, well, why did that happen? It's during this time period when the Ptolemy dynasty is ruling over Jews. And because that's the seat of culture, there are Jews that are moving to Alexandria because that's the cultural capital of this part of the the Greek empire. The Septuagint, the Greek version of the Old Testament, was compiled in Alexandria around 130 B.C. So that's where the 
Greek version of the Old Testament is going to come in. It's during this time period when the Ptolemies are ruling over. So just to back up for a minute, what we see is there's not any evidence of a lot of oppression under the Medo-Persians. They're the ones who let them start going back. Again, they're, they're taxing them. They're under their control, but they're basically letting the Jews do what they want to. And then the Ptolemies come, a little less freedom, being a little harder, making it difficult, maybe some lowercase p persecution of the Jews that's going on, but it's not as bad as it could be. It's going to get worse. The Ptolemies warred for decades with the Seleucids. That's probably not the right way to pronounce that, but that's the NIV pronunciation, the Nathan International Version. It's also the redneck South Georgia swampy version. Uh, but the, the Seleucids, uh, they're named for Seleucus or Seleucius. I don't know how to pronounce that. Although, let's be real, I do better than Josh Powell, right, when it comes to the pronunciations. So, so Seleucus and the Seleucids. Uh, so Seleucus is another one of those generals. He's the general who's based in Syria. And it's his descendants who are warring with Ptolemy's descendants. Uh, you know, these sort of things where you divide the empire up among two or three or four people, that never lasts. Eventually, their grandkids are trying to kill each other. Uh, so that there's only one person who's left standing. And that's what's happening here. So the Seleucids gained control of Israel in 198, and they ruled the region for almost 40 years. At first, the Jews welcomed Seleucid rule because Israel enjoyed greater autonomy the first two or three years than they had had under the Ptolemies. They were like, wow. This is like going back to the Medo-Persian Empire. We're having to pay our tribute taxes, but they're basically leaving us alone and letting us do what we want to do. But it didn't last. Within about four years, the Seleucids began persecuting the Jews and requiring their total conformity to Hellenistic religion. Now, if you're wondering what is Hellenistic religion, you've read about it before but it was called Greek mythology when you were in school. This is Zeus and Hera and all of those different legends, Mount Olympus. That's what's being required of the Jews during this time period. No more worshiping Yahweh. You have to worship the Greek pantheon. You have to offer those sorts of sacrifices. Persecution reached its climax with an event that I'm going to guess some of you are familiar with. Under Antiochus Epiphanes, and I give you there the dates that he ruled, uh, Antiochus Epiphanes forbade circumcision and Jewish feasts. He required Jews to worship the Greek gods. He plundered the temple, and he even sacrificed swine on the temple's altar. And if you remember, that is a big deal because our Jewish friends do not believe that swine are kosher animals. They're unclean animals. So this was done deliberately as a conquering act to show the Jews who was boss. What Antiochus Epiphanes is pushing for is total assimilation. He's trying to get rid of all of the what we would now call the religious part of the Jewish culture and to assimilate the Jews fully into their empire. Many Jews interpreted this last act sacrificing the pigs as the abomination of desolation that Daniel prophesied about in Daniel chapters 9 through 11. Christian interpreters debate whether that's the abomination of desolation full stop or whether that prefigures future things that are going to happen. Uh, but almost everybody in Judaism and the early church agreed that uh, this was it or it was stage one of the abomination of desolations. This was a very, very offensive, horrible thing when it happened. Would you repeat that again? Because I've been looking for a good definition. Of the abomination of desolation. So almost all the Jews... And the early Christians agreed that 
this was this act where Antiochus Epiphanes comes in, plunders the temple, sacrifices the swine, that that is in some way what Daniel is talking about with the abomination of desolation. The question is, is that the entire fulfillment of that prophecy? Or does this prefigure something that's going to happen in the future that's going to involve figures like the Antichrist or one of the beasts that arises out of the sea or out of the people and whatnot? And Christians debate that, but everybody agrees that this is at least the initial fulfillment of that with uh, Antiochus Epiphanes coming in. So it's a really big deal, uh, and it's extremely offensive, and it leads to revolt in Israel. So some of you have heard about some of this before. Between 167 and 160, the Jews revolted against Seleucid rule. The leader was a priest named Mattathias, and Mattathias had five sons. He dies in the middle of this revolt, and under the leadership of his oldest son, Judas Maccabeus. Israel gains its independence. Judas restored all Jewish rituals, rid the temple of all evidence of Hellenistic religion, all those false idols. They, they, they put idols to Zeus in the temple. So getting rid of all those idols, restoring everything that was taken. Hanukkah commemorates the Maccabean revolt and the cleansing of the temple. Sometimes Christians wonder, why can't we find Hanukkah in the Old Testament? Because it's not in the Old Testament. Hanukkah is from the intertestamental period. It's our Jewish friends celebrating the reinstitution of their religion after the Maccabean revolt. So that's where the Festival of Lights comes from. The Maccabean family, this is a little confusing, they become known as the Hasmoneans because... The second Maccabean, that's part of his name after Judas, and it just, I don't know why they're not the Maccabeans and they're the Hasmoneans. I'm just telling you they're the Hasmoneans. If you see Hasmonean, it means the Maccabeans. So they become the Hasmonean dynasty, and they rule Israel for a century, almost to the year. I think it's 99 years that, uh, that they rule over Israel. And at first, under that dynasty, Israel prospered. But... Following the death of Judas Maccabeus, the Hasmonean rulers became increasingly corrupt and some even promoted idolatry. If you're a student of the Old Testament and you see these cycles of Israel kind of returning to the Lord in faithfulness, falling into idolatry, returning to the Lord, falling into idolatry, especially among the rulers, it's so fascinating that when we study the extra-biblical history of this period, that same pattern holds. And so here we see Judas Maccabeus is almost like one of the judges. And he's faithful to the Lord and he leads them to revolt against this oppressive group and to reinstitute authentic worship of Yahweh and whatnot. And then just within a generation or two after him, they're drifting and they're sacrificing to idols again. It's a pattern that we see throughout Israel's history. Things were so bad that in 63 B.C., several Jewish leaders asked the Roman general Pompey to occupy Israel and restore order. How many of you knew that the Romans were invited to come and take over Israel? Isn't that interesting? Be careful what you wish for. They didn't trust their Jewish ruler anymore. And they asked the Romans to come in and restore order. Is that the General Pompey? That is the General Pompey. Of Julius Caesar's that is, Pompey? That's Julius Caesar's Pompey. That's exactly right. This is very shortly after the time of Julius Caesar. Mm hmm. There is. We're gonna we're gonna talk about it. it is. We're gonna talk about first and second Maccabees in just a few minutes. So we're gonna talk about that. Yeah. So is all this in the intertextual period taking place like when they came back? Is it in the geographical area of Judah or is it, you know, the two kingdoms they come back together? 
That's a great question. So did the two kingdoms come back together or is, in this, is this in the geographical uh, area of Judah? This is mostly in the geographical area of Judah. Some of it is in what used to be the northern kingdom, but the northern kingdom never comes back. That's why we talk about the lost tribes of Israel, if you've heard that language. Uh, we'll mention what happens to some of them in just a few minutes, but they're never restored. Their history zigs while Judah zags and, uh, and comes back. So that's a great question. That's right. They do. They do. That's what we're going to talk about, that interspersing of the northern tribes and what happens to them. Yeah. When you say several Jewish leaders invited the Romans, yes. is that a handful, scores, or hundreds? It's not hundreds. That's a great question. Um, it is in between a handful and scores. Okay. As best as I can, I mean, as best as I can tell, what you're looking at is something like a couple dozen Jewish nobles who had ties to the Hasmonean Empire, but they recognize it's just too corrupt. Not empire, it's not empire, the Hasmonean nation. They recognize it's too corrupt. And so uh, these, they didn't use that terminology, but basically these Jewish noblemen go behind the king's back to the uh, Roman general in the neighborhood and say, we would love to be loyal to you. Can you come get rid of our corrupt leader? It doesn't go the way they expect, though. It, Pompey makes quick work of the last Hasmonean king, but he immediately offended his allies by entering the Holy of Holies. Now, he doesn't go in and sacrifice a pig, but he's a Gentile who goes in, and he does it to show the Jews who's boss. And they immediately go, uh-oh, we made a mistake. That's the beginning of the cycle of mistrust between the Jews and the Romans that we find throughout the New Testament. It's Pompey coming in. And it's tricky. On the one hand, Rome allowed the Jews to practice their faith freely and not submit to Roman religion. You don't need to miss this, okay? Even in the New Testament, Rome doesn't care what Israel is doing when it comes to religion. And they're the only people in the Roman Empire that are not forced to conform to Roman religion. And you know why? The Roman Empire didn't want to put up the fight. Those Jews are crazy. They worship one God who they say is the only real God. It's not worth it. So they basically just put some boundaries on them and take their taxes. But they have a relative amount of religious freedom under Rome. That's not the issue. The issue is, on the other hand, Rome imposed strict taxes on the Jews. They paid for that freedom. And they established garrisons throughout Israel in towns like Nazareth. Nothing good could come from Nazareth. Why? Because it was a Roman garrison. That's where they put their soldiers. So they let them do whatever they want to with their temple and their little sacrifices and things like that, but they tax them heavily and they put Roman soldiers all over Israel. That's the mistrust. In 37 BC, we're talking just a generation before the birth of Christ, Rome installed Herod the Great as the king of Israel. He was half Jewish. So that was his legitimate claim. He's got Jewish blood. He's half Jewish, half Gentile. But they make him the puppet king of Israel. But he's allied with Rome and working closely with the Roman governors. That's exactly what we see with a later Herod and with Pontius Pilate. They're not necessarily buddies, but they work together. There's a strategic alliance between this royal puppet family and the Roman governors. With funds collected from Roman taxation, Herod undertook numerous building projects throughout Israel. The most famous is the expanding of the temple until it was double its original size. By the way, the te Herod's temple was finished almost at exactly the same time that Jesus was probably born. It was probably finished 
two to four years before Jesus was born. Because there's some debate about when Jesus was born. Uh, but it's right before Jesus is born when that uh, temple is fully expanded. Uh, and it's Herod's temple. Now, that's not the only thing he built. He built entire cities. If you've ever visited Israel and uh, you see the Roman aqueducts in places like Tiberias, a city that he built, and he built the aqueduct Caesarea Maritime, uh, which becomes his capital. It's not even Jerusalem. Jerusalem is like the historic capital, but uh, he builds his beach house in Caesarea Maritime, Caesarea by the sea. And, uh, and, and that's where he spends most of his time. And uh, it, it's remarkable. If, if we're just talking about, again, not that this is really a thing, but if we're talking about the secular history of Israel during this time, Herod is highly successful. He's got all kinds of projects, infrastructure, building up that nation, making life easier for everybody. But it's coming at high taxation and everybody knows he's not devout and his family's not devout. They are in cahoots with the Romans. That's a great question. So wasn't the temple built to supposed to be built to specific divinely given specifications? So is this just a vanity project? Um, it's absolutely a vanity project. Um, as to whether it was sinful in principle to expand it or not is debated by Bible scholars because he's not changing that original blueprint. He's building up things around it. Does that make sense? So it's definitely for his ego but, uh, but you find Bible scholars are kind of mixed, and some of them say that he's, uh, he's sinning by expanding it, and others say, no, I mean, he's really just expanding everything that's kind of like outer temple and, and what's around it and whatnot. Uh, the biblical temple itself, if you will, was rebuilt and was still uh, the way it had originally been for the most part. It was. It was built to the standards. Yeah. So, yes? Um, forgive me, I can't remember exactly where, but I remember you know, going over some of the studies that um, wasn't it when the second temple uh, did not um, contain the glory of the first temple? Yeah. The right. The second temple, the first temple, uh, even going back, Back to the tabernacle, we see in various ways God manifests His presence in the temple to symbolize that He is there with His people. And the same thing happens whenever the temple is dedicated. Uh, with the second temple, that does not seem to be as big as a theme. So I don't think we can prove from Scripture that there's never any moment that they see or sense the presence of God but they've clearly moved on and just rebuilding the temple is symbolic of reconstituting the nation more than seeing a cloud or a light that manifests God's presence, if that makes sense. So let's talk about the different... Yes, sir. It was. Yeah. It was God's desire to rebuild the temple. Well, I think what we're talking about here is more the expansion of the rebuilt temple and whether that's appropriate or not. Yeah, that was the one that showed 516. Right. Right. 516 was prophesied by God. Uh, AD 30, or excuse me, BC 37, there's not anything in Scripture that clearly points to that. But Herod's not changing the blueprint of the temple. He's expanding the temple compound, if that makes sense. But he's not, he's not adding, like, he's not making the Holy of Holies bigger or, you know, something like that. But like the temple of Gentiles, I mean, excuse me, the court of Gentiles. Right. That's what's added. The court of women or whatever. Mm -hmm. Okay. 
Absolutely. The gates are added that lead into different sections. So let's talk about the varieties of Second Temple Judaism. Some of this is going to be very familiar. Uh, Second Temple, the Second Temple period was a time of religious transition in Israel. In the region that had previously been the northern kingdom of Israel, the Samaritans emerged as a separate people group distinct from the Jews as early as the 300s. It happened over several generations of intermarriage and religious syncretism. The Samaritans affirmed the Pentateuch, but they rejected the prophetic writings and the wisdom literature. They tended to worship Yahweh alongside various pagan deities, and they rejected Jerusalem as the royal city. So you can see some continuity and discontinuity there between the northern kingdom and some of what they did, not recognizing Jerusalem anymore and building up the high places and, and whatnot. All that's kind of carrying over into this time. And what you have is some Samaritans, if I'm going to be a little anachronistic, but there were some Samaritans who were sort of like un, unorthodox Jews. There were others that were really like pagans that also were attempting to worship Yahweh. So it just becomes very religiously mixed among the Samaritans. But uh, they would have considered themselves a separate people from the Jews, but many of them would have also said that they were heirs of those promises to Abraham. So it's just very confusing with the Samaritans. Among the Jews, though, the books of the Hebrew Scriptures were all completed and in circulation throughout this period. Like the Samaritans... All Jews affirm the Pentateuch as Scripture. But other sections of the Hebrew Scriptures were rejected by some groups. We'll talk about that in a minute. In addition to Scripture, numerous apocryphal books were in circulation, some of which were widely read and appreciated by Jews. The most famous are 1st and 2nd Maccabees, which recount the Maccabean Revolt and its aftermath, and Ecclesiasticus, which was a wisdom book modeled after the Proverbs. Those books, as well as some that were written during the first century, so they're going to be contemporaneous to the time of the New Testament, were collected in what comes to be called the Apocrypha, which was declared part of the Old Testament canon at the Council of Trent during the time of the Reformation. So that's why Catholic Bibles contain the Apocrypha, because at the Council of Trent, in response to people like Martin Luther and John Calvin, the Roman Catholic Church declared the Apocrypha to be Scripture. Some of you are going, wait a minute. But my Catholic friends say it was always Scripture. Well, they say that retroactively, but it's actually not until the time of the Reformation that the Catholic Church declares the Apocrypha to be Scripture. So you may be saying, what, did they just add it in then? Well, no, it was in the Bible before then, but it wasn't Scripture. You're saying, well, how does that work? That's confusing. Yes, it was confusing, which is why people like Martin Luther and John Calvin said, get that out of the Bible, it's not Scripture. And then the Catholics raised the ante and said, oh, yes, it is. And so to this day, our Catholic friends say that it's Scripture. Uh, virtually no Protestants accept it as Scripture. But uh, those books were written, some of them, about a third of them during the intertestamental period, and about two-thirds of them during the first century A.D., and that's where the Apocrypha comes from. Hanukkah based on uh, first and second Maccabees? Yeah. Hanukkah comes, I forget if it's first or second Maccabees. Hanukkah is recounted in one or the other. I think it's second Maccabees, and that's where uh, the tradition comes from. Yeah. One brief story. I had a cousin who uh, married into the Catholic Mafia in Miami. Every bit of that's true. Um, all, all the men in the family had to uh, get released from their country club prison with their uh, parole officers or case officers to be able to go to the, uh, the wedding. Uh, it was really interesting. You would ask them what their jobs were, and all of them said, eh, I dabble. So, so whenever, whenever she got married... 
My, uh, my very Protestant nanny, who is with the Lord now, was invited to do a scripture reading. And, uh, and very famously, at the rehearsal, whenever they're going through everything, nanny says into the mic where everybody can hear it, Second Maccabees, this ain't in my Bible. <laughs> so my parents were amused by the mafia part. Me being nerdy thought the apocrypha part was even funnier than the mafia part. So, All right. So that's the apocrypha. Two related institutions developed during the period of Second Temple Judaism that continued to be important during the time of Jesus and beyond. Scribes were a scholarly class that was tasked with interpreting and teaching Torah. Because of the changing status of the temple and the related sacrifices, remember, Jews can't sacrifice without a temple. The other sacrifices don't work when the temple isn't functioning in the Old Testament way of thinking about things. So because of all that turmoil during this period, scribal teaching became increasingly important and authoritative in forming Jewish identity. Access to the temple comes and goes, but the scribes continue to teach us what it means to be part of God's people. Closely related to them, the earliest known synagogues date to the 3rd century B.C., it is likely that synagogues were originally homes where Jews met to pray together and study Torah during periods when the temple was inaccessible. I say likely because actually there's a lot we don't know about the origins of the synagogues. They just kind of show up and all of a sudden there's records of them. But uh, what it seems like is they started gathering in homes, almost like house churches if you will, and then they start building buildings that they dedicate to the Lord and that's where the scribes are teaching uh, about the law. And again, probably originally because the temple was uh, inaccessible or had been desecrated, depending upon what time period we're talking about. Over time, scribes became responsible for the teachings in the synagogues. So the scribes come about a little bit before the synagogues, but by the time we've got synagogues, they're close together and, uh, and they're closely connected. Within Judaism, there were at least four different groups before the time of the New Testament that we want to talk about. Now, there is a fifth group in the New Testament. We're not going to talk about them except I'm going to mention them. That's the Zealots. But the Zealots don't come around until the first century, and first century AD. And we're talking about the first century BC. So there's no Zealots yet, but they're also going to be in the New Testament time. But during the intertestamental period, there's four different groups, each of which was characterized by different emphases. The first group were the Essenes, who lived in tight-knit communities throughout the region. The Essenes believed that they were the true remnant of Israel and that they were waiting for the Messiah to establish an eternal kingdom where they would rule alongside Him. The Essenes emphasized ritual purity and they likely invented the rite of baptism. Though there is no evidence that John the Baptist wasn't a scene. Now, if you go to Israel, the tour guides are going to say the most famous of the Essenes was John the Baptist. There's absolutely no evidence that John the Baptist was an Essene, except he dunked people and so did the Essenes. So he might have picked that up from them because there were Essene communities throughout Israel. But, uh, but that's likely where the practice of baptism came from, though it had a different meaning for them. It was just washing away your sins. They held what I would say was a fatalistic view of God's sovereignty, leaving little room for either God's grace or human freedom. So this is very much God has determined everything that's going to come to pass, but not in such a way that there's still any sort of human free will. We're just all kind of acting on the script that God has set. That would be more like the Essene view. So it's, it's more like Islam and Islam's understanding of God's sovereignty than it is um, Christian versions of God's sovereignty. The most famous Essene community and the one that many of you are familiar with was Qumran, where the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered in 1947. Uh, that's not the only one, but it's the most famous one because of the Dead Sea Scrolls. Uh, there's no direct evidence of the Essenes in the New Testament. There's no references to them. We just know that they were there. 
and they were there until about A.D. 70 when the temple fell. So they're not really in the New Testament, but they're contemporaneous with the end of the intertestamental period in the New Testament. Much more important, the Sadducees. They were a small but influential group of wealthy families from a priestly background. The Sadducees comprised most of the Sanhedrin. The estimates I see uh, are that at any given time, 70 to 75% of the members of the Jewish council were from the Sanhedrin. So they kind of control that. I mean, excuse me, we're from the Sadducees. The Sadducees controlled the Sanhedrin. They controlled the high priesthood, and they collaborated closely with the Roman authorities, including in including in Jesus' crucifixion. They were unpopular with other Jews and were sometimes rivals with the Pharisees. The Sadducees believed that only the Pentateuch was Scripture, and in general, they were more concerned with political power and commerce than other groups of Jews. They rejected the resurrection of the dead. We know that from the New Testament, don't we? Jesus confronts the Sadducees or on that, or they try to trip him up on that. And they were not awaiting a Messiah. They didn't believe that was going to happen. They emphasized human freedom and had little to say about God's sovereignty or His grace. The Sadducees were uh, very not theological. I don't know that they would have used that language. But for them, Judaism was an identity. And they were just trying to figure out how to thrive in the Roman Empire by being close to the Romans. So they're not talking about the grace of God at all. They're not talking about God's sovereignty. Uh, it's, it's almost kind of a secular view of history. I mean, they still believe in God, obviously. But uh, maybe a better way, it's almost like a deistic view that you get with the Sadducees. There is no clear evidence in the New Testament that any of the Sadducees became followers of Jesus. There may have been some, but there is no clear evidence. No Sadducee is named, never does it say, and that Sadducee became a Christian, or that sat. No clear evidence. Some probably did, but it's obviously not something emphasized in the New Testament. They are Jesus' fiercest enemies, which is interesting because we tend to think the next group is, but it's more complicated than that. The Pharisees were close allies of the scribes who wanted to see Israel renewed spiritually through faithful interpretation of Scripture and a commitment to ritual purity. If the Sadducees were identified with the temple, the Pharisees were identified with the synagogue. They accepted the inspiration of the entire Hebrew Scriptures, all the sections we've talked about. In addition to Torah, they also emphasized hundreds of additional teachings that sought to further apply the biblical commands. The Pharisees emphasized God's grace more than their contemporaries. That may surprise you. But they also, this is what we tend to think about, They also tended toward legalism because of the extra-biblical teachings. You've heard of this before, right? The 400 different commands that they've added, which are really about how to apply Torah. They're not like completely made-up rules, but they're all about how to apply Torah, and they begin to treat that as if it is on the same par as what God clearly commands in the Scriptures. So that's why there's the, I think, well-deserved reputation of having uh, legalistic tendencies. But the Pharisees were awaiting a Messiah whom they believed would conquer God's enemies and reinstate an etern- reinstitute an eternal Davidic kingdom on earth. They were strongly opposed to Roman occupation and believed the Sadducees had chosen the path of political influence over religious faithfulness. So this is why it's complicated. While most Pharisees rejected Jesus and His message, and we see that clearly with uh, the Gospels and even going past the, Paul's life and whatnot, 
Some of the early Jewish followers of Jesus were Pharisees who recognized Him as the Messiah. And when you see everything the Pharisees believe, you can see why that makes sense. The Pharisees on a spectrum, their belief is closer to early Christian belief than the Sadducees or the Essenes. And so that's why we see it's a mixed bag. They're both opposing Jesus because He's rejecting their extra-biblical teachings and calling it legalism, but some of them are becoming Christians. And some of them are inviting Him into their house and they're open to His message and whatnot. And so uh, sometimes the Pharisees get a worse rap than they deserve, but that doesn't mean they're good guys. That doesn't mean that they don't need to turn from their sins and trust Jesus as their Messiah. But, uh, but you can see some of their beliefs, they're more similar than not. Is it true that the Pharisees had a tight relationship with the zealots? Some of them did, but some of the zealots were also more or less irreligious. And it was just all about Jewish nationalism for them. Yeah. So have you ever met somebody who never goes to church and they don't read their Bible and they don't share the gospel, but they're all about America being a Christian nation? Of course you have. You live in South Carolina. That's kind of how the zealots were. That's kind of how the zealots were. So they weren't necessarily pious, but some of them were all about Jewish national identity. That's all on the other hand, yeah. Um, did each of these, are they called sects? I'm not sure. Mm-hmm. They're often called sects. Yes. I have to be very careful how I pronounce that again. That swampy South Georgia def, uh, dialect comes out. Um, but did each of them have their own rabbis and their own priests? Or who were the rabbis well, and who were the priests? So that's a great question. So the uh, priests tend to be Sadducees and the rabbis tend to be Pharisees. Rabbis teach... Priests are about sacrifices and purity. Yeah. The Essenes uh, did not have rabbi or priests in the same way. Well, they didn't have priests that were tied to the Levitical priesthood. Uh, Again, this is a little anachronistic, but maybe here's the way to think about it. The Pharisees cared about doctrine. The Sadducees cared about politics. And the Essenes were more like a cult. It's a little anachronistic, but that's kind of the spread that's there. The Pharisees were all about the teachings, though. The Sadducees wanted the power. They didn't care a lot about the teachings. Again, the high priesthood was more about power. And, uh, and the Essenes were the people who go off into their own communities and do their own thing. Many of the Essenes uh, practice sexual abstinence, even in marriage. Uh, many of them renounced marriage. I mean, so there's kind of things we identify today with cult-like tendencies. You would see that with, with the Essenes. I'm going to use a theological term. They were weird. <laughs> but this is important, and we don't want to miss this. The final group was definitely the largest. What I'm going to call, for lack of a better phrase, everyday Jews. This is also the group we know the least about because they did not leave written records. But we know a lot about them. We know that many Jews worshipped Yahweh. They resented Roman occupation. They participated in the various festivals and feasts. They attended synagogue. Some of them were clearly awaiting a Messiah though they were also confused about some of the details of what that Messiah was going to do. There's also evidence many Jews resented the Sadducees and rejected the strict expectations of the Pharisees. Most of Jesus' earliest Jewish followers were everyday Jews that were not tied to any of those sects. Maybe there's other sects and we just don't know about them because they don't leave written records. But again, there seems to be just kind of like a common grassroots Jew. And most of those common people tend to, uh, tend to be the, the early harvest. This is most of the disciples come from this group. They're not tied to any other group, uh, even the zealots besides Simon the Zealot. Uh, they're just not tied to uh, those other groups. The fishermen were not tied to any of those 
groups. They're not like Paul who was a, who was a Pharisee. Joseph and Mary, no evidence that they had ties to any of those groups. They're probably out of this more just kind of everyday common Judaism that we don't know a whole lot about, but we can intuit a lot about it from the New Testament and sometimes from other writings in that era, what they believe. This is probably most of the people. So this is why Bible scholars think that you have a rivalry between the Sadducees and the Pharisees. The Essenes don't care. They're off doing their own thing. They're just waiting for a Messiah to come so that they can rule a spiritual kingdom. They're not thinking about a new heavens and a new earth. They're more like we go to heaven when we die and float around playing harps. But what you have with the Pharisees and the Sadducees is two different power blocks that are fighting for the hearts of the people. The Sadducees think the pathway to renewal is to work with Rome. The Pharisees think the pathway to national renewal is to obey Torah, and we have 400 suggestions about how to do that rightly. And they're competing for the hearts of the people, and into that... John the Baptist says of his first cousin, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And Jesus comes preaching the kingdom of God with a different understanding of the kingdom than any of those other groups. The Sadducees said, said the kingdom's already here and it's working out pretty well for us. The Pharisees said, We're waiting for the kingdom. And it's going to look a lot like us. The Essenes said, we're waiting on the kingdom where our souls are going to float around in heaven, worshiping the Messiah all day long, and it's going to be glorious. Everyday Jews, they were hoping for a Messiah who was going to come and overthrow Roman rule. Well, he did, just not the way they thought. But we'll talk about that over the next few weeks. Before I open it up for a last couple of questions, I'm sorry we're two or three minutes late tonight. Let me recommend some resources. Josephus is by far the biggest treasure trove of information from this period. Now, we have to be careful with Josephus because Josephus is aligned with the Sadducees. And so you've got to filter what he says through that, but he still gives us more information than anybody else. I love Walt Kaiser and Paul Wegner's book, A History of Israel from the Bronze Age through the Jewish Wars. This is kind of a college level or even if you're in a Christian K-12 school, kind of junior, senior year of high school sort of textbook. Uh, Easy to read, lots of pictures and charts, and kind of the last couple of sections of the book focuses on the stuff that we're talking about, but it's all of Israel's history. N.T. Wright and Michael Byrd's The New Testament in Its World, An Introduction to the History, Literature, and Theology of the First Christians is a seminary-level textbook. And sometimes they say things about the text of Scripture I disagree with, but they are very strong when they're talking about what we're talking about tonight and kind of what's happening culturally with, uh, with Judaism at the time. And then I recommend from the Gospel Coalition Bible Commentary that short uh, but really helpful Uh, essay on Between the Testaments that you can find online. Any questions about the intertestamental period or Second Temple Judaism? Isn't this interesting? Do you think this is interesting? I mean, I I think it's really interesting. So I like it. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, there there was still a Jewish presence in Egypt that continues uh, well into the early church period and into the 2nd and 3rd century. There's still many Jews in Egypt and other parts of Europe as well. Absolutely. I was just going to ask you if um, if you think it would be correct to say that the Old Testament period ends with John the Baptist? Yeah, that's a great question. It's interesting as I was studying this because uh, that's a common argument, and I've heard a lot of preachers say that over the years, that that John the Baptist is the last of the Old Testament prophets. Um, I don't think that's true because it's not in the Old Testament. But if you mean that John the Baptist is the last of the prophets 
before the Messiah has completed His saving work and introduced the new covenant. I think that's absolutely true. And John the Baptist is a transitional figure. Uh, but, you know, he dies before there's anything like Christianity. So he is a uh, Jewish follower of Yahweh who is looking for the coming kingdom and believes he has found it in his cousin. By the way, how weird is that if we don't know it's John the Baptist and Jesus? I mean, think about that sentence. That's weird if it's anybody else. But we know from Scripture that that's what God was doing and that's how He was at work in that family. Well, He was the son of what priest? He was... Uh, Zachariah. Zachariah. Yeah. So, was Zachariah a Pharisee or a judge? Or... Not, it doesn't appear that he's tied to any of those groups. Okay. Just a Levitical priest. Levitical. Probably. Anna. We see somebody else just an everyday Christian who God reveals Jesus is the Messiah. It's just very interesting. All right, let's close with a word of prayer. Lord, thank you for even the stuff around your word and the way that it helps to shed light on your word. Uh, Lord, we pray that you would uh, help us not to be like these different sects that become distracted by politics or by human rules or by uh, waiting for you to do dramatic things that the Bible doesn't talk about, Lord. Uh, help us to be earnest followers of Jesus who seek to allow Him to be King in every part of our lives for your glory and our good. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Y'all have a great week and we'll see you next time talking about the New Testament.